I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For I believe in the name of Jesus. We sing this truth. We've talked about this truth. And this is what we all profess to believe. But my question to you is what exactly does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? And furthermore, does the church today correctly understand what it means to believe in the name of Jesus? And is believing in the name of Jesus enough? Often it seems that um, there is so much left out of the gospel when we ask people to believe in the name of Jesus that sometimes it gets muddied. And so today I would like to look through a passage in John chapter 3 that will clarify this and addresses this topic directly. While there's plenty more to be said regarding John chapter 3, we're going to be just hitting the highlights and skimming through the interaction Jesus had with Nicodemus. Now, this conversation with Nicodemus, um, John is trying to paint a larger picture than what we see here. It's really, um, you know how you kind of use cliff notes when you're in high school and you just kind of skim through the story, you don't actually read it. This is what we're getting here. This is probably a much longer, more drawn out conversation, but John is just going to give us the highlights, the cliff notes, so to speak, of the story. This first section up until verse 9, chapter 3, if you're looking at your uh, Bible in chapter 3 of John um, through about verse 8 or 9, it is going to be absolutely packed full of divine sovereignty. From there down in the passage, there is a a larger emphasis on human responsibility. However, in the first few verses, there is an incredible focus by John on the sovereignty of God, which is a very apt thing to challenge a Pharisee with. And before we dive in in earnest, I want to to preface this section with a word of caution, um, because there are different factions and different methods and schools of thought on interpretation for this sort of passage. There is the more Calvinist, more Arminian view on this sort of text, and um, what I want to ask you to do is listen um, without your theological box already decided and shoved onto the text. Often I feel that, myself included, but we, we tend to come up to a text and when we're deciding what it should read, we take what our box of theology is and shove it onto the text. And so this section is full of um, divine sovereignty, election, irresistible grace, but that doesn't negate the fact that there is strong human responsibility throughout the entire text. Um, This is not primarily a discussion of those doctrines. However, I want you to be aware of that as we discuss this topic. There are three truths that I would like you to glean from this message. There are two types of faith, one that saves and one that does not. This is painted most clearly in the book of James. However, we see Jesus, when he is interacting with this Pharisee, he really challenges him on that point. Secondly, salvation is entirely a work of God. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Third, the smug pride of legalism, which attempts to garner merit before God by our good works, prevents one from salvation. Those who believe Christ is something to be added into their life um, 
I, I you know, you run into this at school or at work, somebody who claims to be a Christian, who believes in Christ, but rather just sees it as something to add in a couple more good works or delete a few bad works. That is not what Christ calls for here in what he's about to challenge Nicodemus with. Those who um, are ready for salvation as an entire life reset, as an entire life restart, are ready to receive the gospel. Um, as Paul said in Galatians, those who want to return to the law make Christ void, null, and no good for them. That is in Galatians 5. We're going to split this text up into seven different sections, and I think this little outline will help you follow the ideas. Those are the three truths that I want you to get out of this. However, the outline of the text flows in a very interesting style. Um, in, ver in chapter 2, we're going to get a running start there. In chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we see the circumstances that Jesus and Nicodemus are in. In verse 1, we meet the character of Nicodemus. In verse 2, um, we see the contact between Nicodemus and Jesus. In verse 3, we see that Jesus challenges him regarding conversion. And in verse 4, we see the confusion of Nicodemus. In verse 5 and 6, we see the clues that Jesus provides regarding um, the conversion, and then uh, verses 7 and 8, you see the challenge that Jesus provides to Nicodemus. I would like to pray before we begin in earnest, uh, not as a time filler, but um, merely to ask for his help as I speak. Father, there is such a great truth to be garnered out of this text. It's one of the grandest truths in all scripture. I pray that you would please allow our speaking and our listening to be seasoned with grace and for um, us to be grown and challenged through this text, Lord. We thank you for everyone that's here today, and I pray that no matter what happens today, you receive all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 2, verse 23, I'd like to get a little bit of a running start. I hope you brought your lunch. Um, verse 23, um, let's go ahead and read through verse 23 just a little bit. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So I want you to picture Jerusalem um, back a couple thousand years ago. If, how many of you have been to South Bend by any chance? South Bend, okay. So South Bend has about a population of 100,000 people. Jerusalem also had a population of about 100,000 people. Now this verse provides a little bit of context in that we are in Passover week. It's a celebration that the Jews remember and have, has been instated for many, many years. But now we're under Roman rule in this context. The diaspora is the Jews that are spread out around the Mediterranean. So you have Jews that are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, all coming back in to Jerusalem during this week to celebrate their religious ceremony. Some have estimated that during this time, about two million extra people descended upon the city of Jerusalem. So it's like taking two million people and shoving them into South Bend. It's a busy time. It's a very tight place. Um, you know, you're not prepared to host two, two million people. So it's going to be a very tight place. And as Jesus teaches, he's going to have large crowds. He's going to have a lot of people listening. And so when you hear that, it was Jerusalem Passover. A lot of people were there listening in the feast day. Many believed in his name. That, that sounds awesome initially. Many believing in Jesus' teaching, many believing in his, his word. That is exactly what we're going for 
when we're evangelizing people, for people to believe in Jesus. If you look back uh, chapter 2, verse 11, um, the disciples believed by seeing the miracles that Jesus did. This, uh, in verse 11, it says, This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So this sound is very similar. The crowds are believing. The disciples believed because of the signs that Jesus did. But unlike the disciples, Jesus' reaction is very interesting. This appears to be good, but Jesus doesn't quite see it the same way. This is where understanding James chapter 2 and the discussion of two different kinds of faith, regenerating faith and non-regenerating faith, is crucial. Look at verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. As I mentioned a moment ago, John is out in this gospel to help people believe there's an evangelistic purpose that he states at the end of the gospel. And he's also, it's polemic in nature, he's trying to defend the deity of Christ. So this verse right here, he's trying to show Christ's omniscience that he is God in knowing the heart of all men. If you have a pen on you, I would encourage you to draw a little arrow between Commit and believe. In verse 23 and 24, I would connect those two words, draw a little circle, and link them together. In the Greek, those are the same two words. They come, uh, it's pistiu, coming from pistis. That is the same work that, uh, word that we always, um, is translated faith, belief, those sort of ideas, to place your faith in something as we would admonish a non-believer. Those are the exact same words. So if you want to translate, uh, kind of paraphrase what he's saying, Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in their believing. If you look in James chapter 2, when we're trying to find out what real faith is, what fake faith is, James admonishes us to look at the works. He says, you'll, you'll see, you know, justified by our works before men, and we see whether it's real faith or not. But Jesus, unlike us, does not need that bit of works. Jesus did not believe himself unto them because he knew all men. He knew what was in the heart of man. Verse 25, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So he didn't need the works that man displays, you know, we, we would say that we know somebody is a Christian by their good works. Jesus, in his omniscience, can look upon the heart and see whether or not their faith is genuine. That's the scene that we're setting when Nicodemus is. Nicodemus really flows out of this little section of scripture as a case study, as an example of somebody's belief that was not sufficient. The character. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. For those of you who study Hellenistic Judaism, which is just Greek-influenced Judaism, um, there were about 6,000 Pharisees throughout the land of Israel at this time, and they were the religious elites. There were a couple different factions of people who um, had religious persuasions, um, you know, of the different factions, and you hear them throughout the Gospels. But the Pharisees... Um, as uh, some have suggested, are almost the most closely aligned with Jesus in belief in that they believed in the supernatural. Other factions did not believe in this. So this is somebody who's of 6,000 people, the ruling class in Israel. 
Now, the fact that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews indicates that he was part of the Sanhedrin, which is a, a group of 71 people who is the ruling entity in Israel at this time. You have the Roman government up here, and the Sanhedrin gets to make local decisions as Rome sees fit. That's why there was such a big deal when, the, when Jesus had to be taken to Pilate because putting somebody to death was above the Sanhedrin's pay grade. So this is somebody who is um, who's pretty high up. He, in, in the religious establishment, he's, he's a celebrity. He's kind of your celebrity pastor of the day. Um, the word Nicodemus, the name Nicodemus, is a rather common name. And this is why I have chosen to wear this shirt today is... If you, if you ever need to remember what Nicodemus's name means, it comes from the same root as Nike, Nike, Nick, Nicodemus, Nick. Um, it means victor. Obviously, Nike was with the sports side there, wanting people to be victorious. But Nicodemus means victor over the people. So his parents had noble intentions. He was a common Greek name, but he was um, always destined for this sort of leadership position. So we have somebody who's at the apex of religion, most fastidious that you're gonna see, followed all the rules, made up some rules, and followed some more. Um, if you ever have some time, research some of the rules that the Pharisees made up um, in order to not break the law. Um, for instance, one of the most interesting is that they, um, they couldn't like walk too far away from their house, otherwise it'd be considered work. So what they would do is they would take a little bit of their house with them and then set it on the ground in front of them every time that they needed to go somewhere. They would break all these rules, and it was all about legalism. They would allow, um, a, they would be allowed to eat an egg from a chicken that birthed an egg on the Sabbath, so long as they killed the chicken after the Sabbath for having birthed an egg on the Sabbath. So their legalism is really, really incredible. I mean, it's it's something that would put most all of us to shame. I would hope. Um, but Nicodemus, you know, he shows up, and this is somebody who's going to, he's going to dot every I, cross every T. The amount of peer pressure that Nicodemus is going to feel as a religious leader is insane. I mean, you have 71 people who are following rules like this exactly. Somebody who's going to break code from this, I mean, that's a big deal. You, you know, Paul and his training as a religious elite, it was a big deal for him to break with the Pharisees. And so this is something that Nicodemus is considering. Um, Jesus is going to, he's going to skip right over pleasantries, at least what's recorded in here. Nicodemus shows up calling him nice titles and, you know, kind of friendly and all that. And then Nick, and then Jesus just, you know, gives him something. He's, he's not about the rules of hypocritical holiness. He's not about more religiosity. He is straight to the point in that legalism cannot get Nicodemus anywhere. It's futile. No more religion is going to get him anywhere. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to get across here, is that nothing Nicodemus can do more is going to allow him entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So we see the contact. And Jesus knows his heart here, and this is another almost omniscience point that John is trying to illustrate. We know that Nicodemus is of the group that we talked about in verses 23 through 25 in chapter 2 because he speaks in plural when he says this. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know, we, we, referring to the group back a couple verses ago, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. 
because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. So he's a representative agent for those in John chapter 2. This is one of the men that Jesus did not believe in because he knew what was going on inside of them. Um, They were convinced that Jesus was from God because they had all this power. If you um, are intrigued by this, if you go over to uh, John chapter 9, verse 16, there is division over Jesus being from God among the Pharisees. Some were like, this guy cannot have this much power and do these works and not be from God. And some were like, he's straight up from the devil. That's what it says in verse um, 16 of chapter 9. So there is confusion in the Pharisees over whether this is a prophet, what he is, who he is, what he's doing here. It is evident that Nicodemus and this plural we are of the persuasion that he is at least from God. He has some sort of belief in the signs that Jesus did, but that is not enough of belief for Jesus to be um, both pleased with and allow him entry into the kingdom. Verse 3, Jesus answered him and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There are many, um, many thoughts on what this can mean regarding he came at night. Um, some have thought that this is symbolic of the darkness that was in Nicodemus' heart, so he came at night. Um, some have suggested, and this is probably the most plausible example, that uh, plausible reason that, you know, Nicodemus has all this peer pressure in his life, so he wants to come at a time when no one is going to see him, so he can have kind of a private conversation with Jesus, and that he can keep this fandom of Jesus in private and where no one can see it under the cloak of night. Um, there, are, there are plenty of explanations possible. Perhaps it was just so crowded that, you know, evening died down, he went at night. I don't know, but one thing is for sure, he did not come during the day. Um, We don't know why, but this is how Nicodemus is referred to throughout the rest of the book. Um, You know, John, for whatever reason, after Nicodemus is introduced, throughout the rest of the book, it's like Nicodemus, the guy who came at night. Like, that that was what stuck with Nicodemus. It's kind of like what he's known for. So in... In this response, Jesus is saying that you need to be born again. That's a common phrase that, we're going to, that we use in evangelical lingo. It's kind of our Christianese. We use the word born again all the time. I mean, you ask somebody what kind of Christian they are and to delineate themselves from any other cult or non-mainstream area, they're going to say, oh yeah, I'm a born again Christian because that separates you in what you believe slightly from Roman Catholicism and other, uh, other denominations and um, ideas. But this, um, this is a little bit different in the original context. So in Matthew, 7, uh, Matthew 3, 7 through 10, um, the Jews rested in the fact that Abraham was their father. When, when considering um, whether or not they could enter the kingdom, you know, they, they thought they were all good because of their heritage. And this is something you see Paul address in his epistle to the Romans because he discusses how the physical lineage of Abraham does nothing for you, but rather it condemns you even further uh, in Romans chapter 2. And then he revisits that topic later in the book, talking about the spiritual offspring of Abraham. This is um, when uh, John is uh, preaching earlier on in Matthew, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits meet for repentance. 
Catch this. And think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able to able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. So this is where, you know, the Jews are just so set in the mindset that nothing bad can happen to them. They have to enter the kingdom of God because they are the physical offspring of Abraham. This phrase that Jesus used, born again, it was a phrase that was more than likely used um, by the Jewish people when somebody, when a proselyte wanted to convert to Judaism. So, you know, something that Nicodemus would have said to a Gentile is that you must be born again. You must come into our religious system. You must be born anew. This must have thrown Nicodemus for a loop then because he is on the inside. He is at the pinnacle, the most inside circle of religion. Yet Jesus is saying to him, you've got to start all over again and you have to just throw it all away. Start anew, born anew. Um, there is, I don't know sometimes why, why they delineate these translations the way they do. Um, the word again, anothen, is translated differently down um, in verse 31. He is wanting, this is an apt word to choose um, by Jesus here because this phrase is one that would especially challenge those who try to get to God by human achievement. The word born again down in verse 31, um, born from above. That is how it is often translated is instead of again, it, its meaning is actually from above. So. If you reread verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So not only is it a fresh start, but you have to have something that you don't, it has to happen to you. It's not something he can ascend to and do more and add more good works. It's something that must happen to him. And this is an apt illustration, um, if you think about it this way. If I ask the question, what did you do? Why, perhaps, did you choose to be a part of the family that you are a part of? Why did you choose to be born into the physical family you are a part of? You would answer, well, I didn't. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. It has to happen to you. There has to be sovereign birth into the life of Nicodemus. Consider James 1, 16 through 18. This, um, this contains the same idea of being born from above, but it speaks of it as from the Father's will. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Catch this phrase. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is why you hear, you know, we, we love talking about how we're children of God. We love talking about how we're brothers with Christ, brothers and sisters with one another. This is a fundamental reason that this is true. Because in the divine sense, we have been born from above. And all of us here that are Christians, genuine Christians, have indeed been born from above, birthed by the Father. Which is why we can claim to be sons of God, brothers with Christ, brothers with one another. Um, Ephesians 2.10, for we are the workmanship, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto work, good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In the theological terms, um, salvation is monergistic, not synergistic. You contribute nothing to your salvation, only the sin that made it necessary. This is the second work of Christ in salvation. This right here, we're picturing redemption and Christ explaining to this man how to become redeemed. The first work being in eternity past, as it says, the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world and that our election was uh, completed before the foundation of the world. This is the second work, the redemption of the man. So this is, you know, there's going to be a natural question that's going to arise. And I think Nicodemus gets a bad rap here because, you know, he's like, we're just like, the guy didn't get it. He really didn't understand what he was talking about. Verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? You know, often we think Nicodemus is kind of being stupid here. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. Can he enter uh, enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? I am of the opinion that this is not Nicodemus being stupid, But rather, this was a rabbinical model of teaching, taking analogies and teaching through them. So more than likely what's happening here is Nicodemus is jumping on Jesus' train and he's saying, how can a man be born one soul? I have come all this way. How can I start anew? How can I enter into my mother's womb a second time? This is impossible. What you're calling for, to be born again, to be born anew, to be born from above, is absolutely impossible. That's what he's responding with. It's not so much of like, I don't, I don't get it. I can't go back to my mother's womb. He, he more than likely knew that you cannot physically enter into your mother's womb again. He is challenging back to Jesus. This is impossible. You can, how, what do you mean I'm supposed to be spiritually reborn? This doesn't make any sense. Now catch the tie between verse four, I'm sorry, verse three and five. You, you hear the same start. Jesus starts the exact same way. Verily, 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 verily. I say unto thee, I say unto thee. And this is where it changes just a little bit. Except a man, and the first time it says be born again, this time Jesus adds a little bit more explanation as to what he's actually saying. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. We'll stop right there. Have you ever had a a, a really good teacher to do this, where you ask a question, which is pretty much what Nicodemus is doing here, and instead of giving you a straight answer, they shoot you back another question? You know, you're, you're like, I just want an answer, and, and they don't give you one. This is what Jesus is doing here because he's challenging Nicodemus to think through this. In, um, in this bit, he, born of water and of the Spirit, that's a very interesting phrase to use. Um, the water and the Spirit are often connected in Scripture. Um, Ephesians 5.26 says... Um, I don't have the oh, there it is. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So the spirit and the word and the water, these are common things that are used in conjunction. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 11 um, continues the same idea. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. So this connection is throughout scripture. The most evident example, though, is back in Ezekiel 36. And I would ask you to flip there because there's something noteworthy that I want you to physically see about the text. 
this is something that Nicodemus is going to be intricately familiar with. Okay, what, what else does he spend his life doing except reading the Law and the Prophets? Um, there are groups in this time that reject the prophetical writings and only take the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. But the Pharisees basically believe in the same canon Old Testament-wise that we do. And so Jesus is going to challenge him because... You know, down here it says in, uh, we're not getting to this part of the text, but he says, uh, art thou the teacher of Israel and knowest not these things? Jesus is like, this is literally what you do with your life. How do you not know this? So he's referring to Ezekiel 36 here, 25 through 32. Read along with me. Then will I sprinkle you clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart will I give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people. I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of heaven and increase of the field that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. So this is an Old Testament looking forward prophecy for the new covenant. Okay, Jesus is taking this new covenant idea of washing water with the spirit, combining them and saying, why don't you understand this prophecy? Furthermore, if you'll look through verse 25 through 30, you will notice that the main word that is in there is I. Verse 25, it's used twice, four times, verse 26, once, 27, and so on. You can count, I trust. Verse, through verse 30, it's all about divine initiative. God is saying, here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. And that is exactly what he's challenging Nicodemus with, right? You must be born from above. You must be cleansed with water and the Spirit. It's speaking of spiritual cleansing, internal cleansing, foundational changes that Nicodemus must endure. Only then, in verses 31 and 32, do you see the human responsibility aspect of the same truth. Then ye shall remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I do this, saith the Lord. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. This is because, in the Sam translation, because God wanted to. He says, I'm not doing this for you, but rather because I desire to. Shame on you. It's not because you deserve this. I wish you deserved it, but it's because I wanted to do this. So this is clue number one that Nicodemus receives from Jesus. Regeneration is entirely a work of God and is absolutely necessary to salvation. It has to happen internally. And that's what he's challenging Nicodemus with here is your religion, just because you go to church on Sunday and show up to all the small groups that you have doesn't mean anything unless something has changed in here and you've been cleansed. Often, and this is well-intentioned, just get people in church. Just shove people in church. Let them hear the word of God. That is how faith comes, by, by the hearing of the word of God. But unless they come to the point where they submit to the lordship of Christ and turn away from their sin and don't want that anymore, 
and there's that foundational spirit, water, cleansing that happens inside, that is not genuine faith. That is somebody who shows up to church and is just like the rest of the world internally. It may have an appearance of external moral, but you are still depraved and wretched inside unless you have been cleansed by the water and the spirit. So that is clue number one. Clue number two, we continue on in the passage. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Efforts of the flesh to produce righteousness through the law are never effective because of sin's nature. Efforts of the flesh to produce righteousness through the works of the law are ineffective because of our sin nature. The law is incapable of producing righteousness in us, and on the contrary, is literally just good for showing that we're no good. That's all it does to us, is the fact that we have such a sin nature, just adding more and more rules on top of the law does not allow us to be saved and produce genuine righteousness inside. It may, you know, it may conform our externals, but the law has no power of regenerative nature in the internal work. Those who please God must have a foundational heart-level change that produces righteousness from the inside out. These are long passages I would like to read out of Romans. However, I think they capture the idea better than I could say them. I think Paul is really addressing this exact idea here. And so if you turn to Romans 7 and 8, we're going to start in Romans 7, 5. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. When, we're, when we were not saved in the flesh, unregenerate, Going through the motions of sin, we were, you know, they, the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, something new inside, and not the oldness of the letter, the external that Nicodemus would have been familiar with. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? If the law is producing all this bad stuff in us, is it sinful? God forbid, megenata in the Greek. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So it shows us sin, but sin, by, take, by uh, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of con, con, uh, concupiscence, for without sin the law was dead. So, you know, when somebody sets a rule, you're like, that's what I want to break. And that's exactly what the law did. You have a rule set before you, and because our sin nature is still internal and inherent to us, when we see a law, we're like, nope, not going to do it. And so that's why the law is so weak to produce righteousness. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it slew me. So it's not bad inherently. But because of our sin nature, it produces death in us. It condemns us further because we just want to break it. On the turn side, we see in Romans 8, this is the blessed bit about being born of the Spirit, born of water and the Spirit. There is now therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. So the fact that the law 
And the law of Christ has been put within us, and we now have, as regenerate people, this inherent desire to follow God and to keep his commandments, to love God, to desire God. That is what's going to produce life, whereas the other law, which is just external, produced sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life is Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do... In that it was weak through the flesh, our sin nature, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Catch this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, we don't live our life in the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do the things of the flesh, but they that are the spirit of the spirit. Catch that parallel to what Jesus said in um, verse Six, that which is born of the flesh is of the flesh. That which is of the spirit is of the spirit. Paul has the exact same idea. For they that are after the flesh do the things of the flesh, and they that are after the spirit do the things of the spirit. If you've been regenerated inside and are following the law that God has now, the law of love, the law of Christ, different phrases are used to symbolize the same thing, it's going to result in that love and devotion to Christ. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Nicodemus is incapable of pleasing God because he doesn't have anything that can please God. I mean, he's going after the flesh, which is, you know, going to work through the law, and as I believe it is Isaiah says, our sins are as our, our good works are as filthy rags. You know, the best that Nicodemus can do without the blood of Christ applied to him does absolutely no benefit. Because the harder he tries, the worse it gets. The more you dive into the law, the more you know, the harder you try, the more condemnation you get because you know more of the law and you break more of the law. So then. They that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye, in brackets, who are actual genuine Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body of the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to live to the flesh, but to live, I'm sorry, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye shall live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the, of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So this is exactly what Nicodemus is challenging him with, to have this spirit placed inside him. And this is what Ezekiel spoke of. You know, we're going to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh, a spiritual term to give you a, a heart able to respond to the divine stimuli of God. Anyone in Nicodemus's status is spiritually dead. And that's what Paul describes it as, is spiritual death. And when we are gifted with this wonderful spirit, it quickens us, it brings us back to life. Somebody who is dead is incapable of responding to stimuli. Somebody who is spiritually dead is incapable of responding to divine stimuli. And until God quickens us, bursts us, gives us life through the water and the spirit, we cannot live. 
So up until this point, as has been the pattern of the sermon, this is mainly just kind of a theological discussion, kind of out there. It's just happening. Jesus and Nicodemus are having this theological discussion. He has some questions. Jesus answers them. About something back. If you look through the passage, it's all kind of like third person. No man, um, verily I say unto thee, except a man. Um, how can a man? It's all, you know, kind of, we rather talk about things in third person. It's like, you know, my friend, I, I have a friend who has this problem. This is exactly what Nicodemus is doing here. Jesus and them are talking, you know, kind of out here, not personal, not attacking Nicodemus. This isn't a problem for Nicodemus yet until he receives the challenge from Christ in verses 7 and 8. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. Ye, you, you have got to be born again. This is for you, Nicodemus, not for everyone else. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but cannot tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Jesus took this theological bit of trivia and said, this is for you, Nicodemus. Don't be shocked that I've said this to you. And verse 8 is wonderful because he kind of switches analogies to something that we can grasp a little bit better. You will never walk into Barnes and Nobles and see books on how to create more wind in your community. And this is exactly the same idea that Jesus is trying to get across. You know, you're not going to be able to create wind or control wind to go here or to go there. And the same is with the Spirit. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou, you know, you hear the sound of it. You know it's there, but you can't do anything about it. It's there. But thou canst tell when, where it's coming from and whither it's going. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, this is not something that you can do more of, that you can produce righteousness, that you can... Just get a little bit more religious or a little bit better. But rather, not only must you be born from above, not only must you have a foundational change, but you can't even control it. It's going to happen. It has to happen to you. This is not something that you can produce. You are not going to force or manipulate God into doing anything. And so this is where Nicodemus, you know, just kind of, goes off the trail here. He's answered, how can these things be? Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? You know, and we go through this wonderful thing and by the end of the passage, you know, it says that everyone who um, doeth, um, doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought by God. This is, at the end of this, Nicodemus just doesn't understand because he doesn't, he has not been, his eyes have not been spiritually opened. And so Jesus is saying, you don't want to acknowledge this truth because your deeds are evil. Your deeds are absolutely evil. And so you don't want to recognize this as true. Those whose deeds are of darkness do not want to recognize or come to the light. This is something that must happen to you by God. So here, here it is. Jesus has presented something that sounds as if salvation is 100% the work of God, and that is true. Yet, you know, these very next verses, you're going to see such a strong emphasis on human responsibility. And just because salvation is 100% of God, it does not mean that man is left without responsibility. 
When we finally call on him for salvation, it is intriguing because it is an admittance that we ourselves are not capable of saving us. Which I know that sounds very fundamental, but I think often we think about it as calling out so that we can have this sort of you know, synergistic, we can go together, but rather we're calling on Christ to save us because we are completely incompetent of saving ourselves. Um, in Psalm 51.17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. Though it is all God's work in our life, when we have a broken heart and we are absolutely broken, we come to the point where we are in love with God and desire God, he's never going to reject anyone. And that's the beauty of it is Nicodemus is being challenged, like this is not something you can do, you can't add more. Yet, if Nicodemus is willing to have a broken heart over his sin and repent and turn to God's grace, he's never going to reject him. And that's one of the most beautiful truths in all scripture is that though we are incompetent to save ourselves, if we are willing to humbly realize that truth, he'll never reject us. This is a beautiful messianic prophecy that I think describes Jesus very well in this moment. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he shall not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. Those who are bruised and beat up and are desperate for God and are looking for God, he's not going to push them away. He's not going to break a bruised reed. And I know we feel like bruised reeds sometimes, especially those who are on the outside looking in of Christianity. Those who want God but don't know what to do, who are desperate for God, he's not going to break them fully. He's not going to cast them headlong, as other scriptures say. A smoking flax, kind of like a candle. You think, you know, when it's just smoking right there and you could even light the smoke and the candle itself would light. He's not going to quench that. He is going to bring forth judgment unto truth. We don't need to fear that God is in control. Such divine sovereignty can be a little bit scary. If you really pause and think about it, the sovereignty of God throughout our lives and salvation and others is a scary idea in some senses. And I think that is the case because we like to be in control. We like to have it all figured out. And if I want this, I can have God's grace. If I want it, I can have his mercy. And we forget that it is indeed grace and mercy bestowed on us instead of accessing it whenever we feel like it. While God is not required to have mercy on anyone, those that come to him, those who are weary of fighting God, those who are done being a rebel to him, he will have mercy. We cannot come and access God's grace. It is unconditional in the sense that no matter what we do, his grace is still lavished upon us, but we cannot be you know, like, yeah, sure, God, and then live exactly the way we want. We have to be willing 
to repent of our sins. And it doesn't mean we do it perfectly. It doesn't mean we're perfect after salvation, but we do have to have that heart, a broken heart, a contrite spirit where we say, I'm willing to let it go. I'm all yours. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 through 30. And at, th- and at that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and the prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomever the Son will reveal him. So you hear in this initial bit of this passage, it's all God's sovereignty. God can hide things from people's sight. He can reveal them if he wants to. He can just show that, pull it away. He said, I thank you that you haven't revealed it to the wise and to the prudent, but to the babes, to the people who who are simple people, who are willing to just look at the faith that we have and need to place in Christ and walk away from, not intellect, but our own intellectual and spiritual pursuit of God, those who are willing to be like children and depend on the Father, those are the people that God will reveal himself to. But then turn around the corner here, and in verse 28 it says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke, lordship. There is absolutely an emphasis on the fact that God, in being God, is going to become the Lord of your life when you become a Christian. And that's great. But here's the soft part, the tender part of Jesus that we always love and cherish. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're going to find rest for your souls in that slavery. In that slavery to Christ, there is more freedom than we will ever find in sin. As Paul says in Romans, you were once slaves of sin, but you are now slaves of righteousness. You are always enslaved to something. It's just what you're enslaved to. You may be enslaved to sin, and you must reject that and turn to God. If you are in Christ's service genuinely, you are enslaved to righteousness. And that doesn't mean we do execute it perfectly, but that's what Paul describes us as. Doulos, doulomai, sangelos, slaves, fellow slaves of Christ. Anyone who comes to Jesus still feel filled with a smug pride that the way they are is just okay is not ready for Jesus to be their Savior and Lord. That's not the real gospel. The gospel of Jesus is the gospel of divine accomplishment. That Jesus came, that he did it all, and we have to get on his team. This quote, I think, um, it's from a Puritan in 1662, David Dickinson. I think it summarizes the truth best because we fail and we do good things as Christians. We really do. We sometimes have our shining moments and we sometimes not shining moments. And catch what David Dickinson says here. This is at the end of his life as he's on his deathbed. And I've prayed this numerous times just because it is so powerful. And as you think about the end of your life, this is, I, I believe this is the perspective that Christ would have us to take. I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and have cast them together in a heap before the Lord and have fled from them both to Jesus Christ. And in him I have sweet peace. 
I have taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and have cast them together in a heap before the Lord and have fled from them both to Jesus Christ and I have sweet peace. There are two types of faith and belief presented throughout scripture, one that saves, one that damns. These people thought they believed in the name of Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in their believing and he needed it to go further. He needed to realize that it wasn't just something more to be added in. It wasn't more religion, more church services to go to, but rather a fundamental life change. And so what I would challenge you to do, and this is not my job, but rather yours is to introspect and to look at your own faith and say, am I a nominal Christian? Do I just attend? Or has there been a foundational water spirit change being born from above? Secondly, salvation is entirely a work of God. The only thing we contribute to salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Are we willing to recognize that we are not participatory in saving ourselves? When we get thrown the lifeboat, it's not like we grab on spiritually because we're dead. It takes somebody dragging us out of the spiritual river. Third, the smug pride of legalism, which attempts to garner merit before God by our good works, prevents one from salvation. If you are on the outside looking in, any sort of legalism. And for them, it was the Mosaic law. They were looking to the law for righteousness produced in them. But anything that we're looking to, to produce righteousness before God, to produce merit before God, isn't going to be enough. Anything that we do, any good works that we may find, whether it, you know, for us, it may be giving and giving our time. And we're like, yeah, I lead a, I, I lead a good life. I live the American dream. And I go to church three times a week, and I'm, and I'm really, I'm pretty decent. Those that still have that smug pride that that is good enough to merit something before God have to learn this truth before Christ will accept them. Because as a matter of fact, as we learn from this passage, it's not so much if we believe in Christ, but rather if he believes in us. You ready to finish, John?